There's been a song in my mind all day. I've been humming it to myself, singing it over myself. Um, I haven't got the greatest of voices, but I'm going to sing it over you. It goes something like this. I'm going to sing my way out of trouble. I'm going to sing till we are free. My God will find me here in the rubble. Oh, rock of ages, you will save me once again. And everyone, I'm going to sing my way out of trouble. I'm going to sing till we are free. My God, my God will find me here in the rubble. Oh, rock of ages, you will save me once again. We'll stop there. Here's the reason we sing. That isn't my song, by the way. Some of you are thinking, that, that guy's a songwriter. <laughs> he, he should not be preaching. He should be writing songs. I feel that way too. It's actually a Martin Smith song, a recent song he, he's written. But this is the reason it's been in my head. Like, and this is what this teaching series is really about. How do you inhabit a moment like this? This is a recap of last week. Is you fix your eyes on Jesus. One of the things that's happening when we sing together is we're reminding ourselves of the character and nature of God because we forget so easily. So if you're in a moment of trouble, this is what the people of God have been doing for the last number of thousands of years, is they sing in that moment. They worship that moment in that moment. They inhabit that moment with joy and they sing until they are free. In the singing, they're reminding themselves of the character of God and the very nature of God becomes their experience, right? So that's what this teaching series is about. Hopefully some of the slides will appear on the screen. We looked at the encounter that Moses had with God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, where Moses has been in a season of adversity, not a two-year pandemic, but a 40-year hiding in the wilderness, hiding from Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet. And in this encounter with God, his central question is, who am I Who am I becoming? I feel like I've lost sight, God, of who you made me to be. Who am I? And I think many of us have been asking that question. Through the last two years and the challenges and the pressure, God, like, who am I? Who am I becoming? And God's response to Moses is to say, essentially, that's the wrong question. We'll get to the question of your identity But the key question isn't around your identity, it's around my identity. And this is the moment where God reveals his name, Yahweh, to Moses and to the people of God. Our deepest concern is our identity, but the heart of the Father, he wants to reveal his name and his identity to us. So we looked at the eight compound names for God in the Old Testament as God begins to reveal his name and his nature to his people. And we basically said in Psalm 23, all of these names are referenced to, they're pointed towards. So the Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh Rahi. If you need a guide in this moment, this is an invitation to experience God as your shepherd. In him, I lack nothing. Yahweh Jireh. Like all of my deep longings are satisfied in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads leads me beside quiet waters. Yahweh Shalom. If you're craving peace, 
because anxiety levels are sky high. God wants to reveal not just his name to you, but his nature. That his nature would become your experience. All of these names, by the way, they're invitations into the heart of God. This is why we need to fix our eyes on the character and nature of God in this moment. Remind ourselves of who he is. He refreshes or restores my soul. Yahweh refreshes, Yahweh my healer. Anyone in need of the healing power of God to touch their life. This is an invitation into the heart of God. He is our healer. He guides me along the right paths. Yahweh Sid Canoe. Like anyone longing for justice, maybe not just for yourself, but for your community or a people group that you care passionately about, longing for justice. Well, this is an invitation into the heart of God. He is our justice. Yahweh Shema, we looked at that last week. Whatever you're going through, however dark the valley may be, he's with you. Not absent, not distant. Yahweh Shema, Yahweh with us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of my enemies. Yahweh Nisi, meaning Yahweh my refuge or Yahweh my banner. Even in the context of fierce battle, we can feast with God. He prepares a table before us where we can feast on his presence and find strength and shelter. Anyone feel like they need to feast at God's table right now? This is an invitation into his heart and his character. And then Yahweh M. Kadesh, you anoint my head with oil. In other words, you sanctify me. You make me holy. You transform me into the person you created me to be. Anyone trying desperately hard to improve themselves? Right? Aren't we all trying to do that? Be the best version of ourselves? God says there's another way. I, I want to tell you about my name and my nature. I'm the one that sanctifies you, transforms you from the inside out to work of the Spirit. Some of us don't understand the character and nature of God. We've got distorted understandings of God. The psalmist says, taste and see that God is good. He doesn't say sort of like ponder and intellectually understand and try and grab hold of these concepts. He says, no, I want you to taste and see. All of these names are an invitation into the nature and the character of God that we might taste and see his goodness. So we're going to focus on one more of the names this evening, Yahweh Jireh. The psalmist says, I lack nothing. All my needs are satisfied in him. So let's look at the name Yahweh Jireh then. It's a, um, a name Yahweh meaning the Lord. Jireh is from the Hebrew verb to see. Put them together literally means Yahweh will see to it. I love that. Yahweh will see to it. Like I use that kind of terminology quite a lot with my kids when they're freaking out like, daddy, daddy, need more screen time. I need more screen time. I'm like, chill out. Daddy will see to it. Now on my phone, this is amazing. Don't you love technology? I have all of their devices and the power to grant them in 15 minute chunks more screen time. (laughs) So they come running to me with anxiety. Daddy, daddy, I need more screen time. And I'm like, it's all right. Daddy will see to it. Just, just my thumbprint is enough to give them more screen time. I mean, that is the power that I have on this device and with this thumb and it feels absolutely great. But I'm, I'm half joking, but when my kids are in distress, but daddy, how are we going to get from here to here? And daddy, what about this? Like, it, it's a joy of mine to be able to say, it's all right. Daddy will see to it. You don't need to live with that concern. 
You don't need to carry that burden. You don't need to carry that anxiety. I'll carry it. Daddy will see to it. Some of you need to know, this isn't just one of the names of God, it's his character, his nature. He wants to speak over you. You don't need to carry that. Yahweh will see to it. God will see to it. Um, Our translations often say the Lord will provide. Um, Think of the word provision then. Another compound word. Um, split, Split it into two then. Pro meaning before and vision meaning vision, um, to see. So it basically means to see before. That's provision, to see before. Listen to these words from a theologian um, from over 100 years ago. So it's a bit old school language. With God, to see is also to foresee. As the one who possesses eternal wisdom and knowledge, he knows the end from the beginning. From eternity to eternity, he foresees everything. Thus, with God, foreseeing is pre-vision. Having pre-vision of man's sin and fall and need, he makes provision for that need. For provision, after all, is merely a compound of two Latin words. I've already done that. Meaning to see beforehand. And we may learn from a dictionary that provide is simply the verb and pre-vision the noun of seeing before. Thus, to God, Prevision is necessarily followed by provision, for he will certainly provide for that need which his foreseeing shows him to exist. With him, prevision and provision are one and the same thing. And some of you are like, say what? Like, does someone just break that down into something that's actually digestible? Here it is with God, prevision and provision are one and the same thing. So God is omniscient, he sees the end from the beginning. So when he sees something, he makes provision for that need, right? We can't even see into the future to see what's coming. And because we can't see, we live with high levels of anxiety of like, what if, what if, what if? And God basically says, I I can see it. I'll make provision for it. Yahweh will see to it. Yahweh will see to it. So the question arises, what will Yahweh see to? Right, he, that's his name, Yahweh will see to it. Well, what is he going to see to? Um, and to answer that question, we're going to dive into a text. So John chapter 3. If you've got a Bible for the three of you that brought your own Bibles, you might want to turn there. Others, feel free to get out your smartphones. Do not check BBC Sport or, or whatever your go-to website may be. Like this is a moment for discipline. Turn to John chapter 3 and we're going to read this text to, together. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, let's just pause there. In John's gospel, John regularly plays on these ideas of light and darkness, right? So, yes, it's just something true to the story that Nicodemus comes at night. But more often than not, John is trying to draw us into something deeper. Like the night represents darkness, It represents the unknown. It represents chaos. It represents struggle. It represents oppression, right? So Nicodemus is coming in a moment of struggle. How many of us are approaching God in this moment from a place of struggle? Like uncertainty. It feels like darkness surrounds. We might even be aware of a greater measure of darkness within. And we come to someone who carries light. Right, so hopefully we can enter this story John is trying to draw us into with perhaps all like Nicodemus. 
in the moment of darkness, trying to find some way to the light. So he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. So this is a conversation about being born again. In other words, it's a conversation about being part of the new creation. We experience a physical birth, but there's a spiritual birth when we come to faith and become a new creation. We enter into the story of the age to come, right? So the conversation for Nicodemus is, is basically, I've seen you doing all the stuff of the, the kingdom, opening blind eyes and all these miracles. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, how do you enter this eternal life that you keep talking about? Eternal life isn't just life after the grave. It's a quality of life present before the grave. As one theologian put it, it's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on the plate while you wait, right? So there's a fullness available now. And Nicodemus is seeing it in Jesus. And he's seeing it as the disciples begin to enter this new way of living. And he's like, that looks great. I don't want to wait to the point of death to enter into this eternal life. I want it now. So how can I be born again? How can I live life fully? Now, the conversation continues. But the climactic verse in the conversation is John 3.16. Perhaps the best known of all of the verses in Scripture. As Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There there is so much depth in this one verse. And for a lot of us, because of our sort of way of reading scripture, we've not really plumbed the depths of this one verse. But I want to take you into some of the riches of this one verse in scripture. Now, the way that Nicodemus would have heard this verse, Jesus is talking about the love of God and then uses this phrase, one and only. So there is a story beneath this text that the language Jesus intentionally uses draws Nicodemus, who's an expert in the law. In other words, he's an expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And by using the language Jesus uses, he's drawing Nicodemus into a story, basically saying, you remember the story? And do you remember the message of the story? Spoiler, the message will be, Yahweh will see to it. Remember the question for Nicodemus, like, how do you live life fully? How do I enter into this life of the age to come? How can I be born again? The answer through the story that's beneath this text is Yahweh will see to it. Daddy will see to it. You don't need to concern yourself. You don't need to strive or carry high levels of anxiety. You just need to trust that Daddy will see to it. Right, so what is the story beneath this text? And why 
is Jesus drawing Nicodemus into the story. Now, in the early centuries, they would have a number of hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics is how you study and interpret the scripture. And the rabbis would have certain principles to help them plumb the depths of any given scripture. And one of the principles was called the principle of first mention. If you want to know what a word in the Bible um, means, you go to its first use in scripture. And as you read that story, it provides insight into what that word means. Right. So if you want to understand the word love for God, so loved the world. Right. So Jesus is talking about love. Nicodemus is probably thinking because he's a teacher in the law. Love, 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 love. What's the first use of the word love in scripture? And immediately Nicodemus reminds himself, ah, it's Genesis 22. And some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, Genesis 20. Yeah, yeah, Genesis 22, right? So the first use of the word love is Genesis 22. So Nicodemus is immediately into the story of Genesis 22. And we're going to enter that story um, together. But before we enter into the story, let me remind you of the context of the story. God has promised Abraham at a very old age that he's going to have many, 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 many descendants, like numerous descendants. This is the, the promise in Genesis 12. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and you will be a blessing. Abraham 75, right? So it's kind of funny. He's beyond the age of, of having kids. And yet he believes in God and it's credited to him as righteousness. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't laugh at it. He believes that if God has promised it, it will become a reality. But that is going to be tested over the coming years. If you go to the next chapter, Genesis 13, fast forward a bit of time, there's a reminder of the promise. Just in case Abraham was beginning to doubt it, you did promise and nothing really happened. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. If it could be counted, then so could your offspring be counted. Fast forward a chunk of time. In fact, 10 years after the initial promise, this is Genesis 15, and God has to remind Abraham again, look at the stars. Last time it was the dust. Now look at the stars. If you can count them, then you can count your offspring. Right? So it's been a decade. And Abraham's thinking, gosh, you promised, but I don't know if you're going to make good on that promise because, you know, I'm getting older. I'm like 85. And my wife is getting like seriously old too. I'm just not sure this is actually going to happen. And if you know the story, then you'll know that Abraham takes matters into his own hands. He takes his wife's slave girl, Hagar. Um, he lies with Hagar. She falls pregnant. They have a baby, Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't the child of the promise. Isn't going to be the line through which all of these promises experience fulfillment. So fast forward. A whole chunk of time. Abraham's 99 when we get to Genesis 17. That's 24 years after the promise. We get impatient when it's been three months. God, I, I prayed it at the back end of 21, God. Like, where the heck are you? Where, where, where are you? Like, he's experienced the waiting for 24 years. And there's a, a final reminder you will be a father of many nations. Sarah will have a boy. Sarah's 90 years old at the time, by the way. I don't know what you'd have been like. Probably impatient, but like, it's been 24 years. I'm, I'm about to hit the ton. I'm about to get a letter from the Queen. Like, and, and I still haven't seen the fulfillment of that promise. Like, God, where are you? 
And, and then they have the baby, right? And just imagine the moment of joy. God has been true to his word. Like we have the heir, the child of the promise through which there's going to be numerous descendants, but it's more than that, through which God's blessing is going to reach the ends of the earth, through which the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, through which God's on a mission to make all things new. This is an incredible moment in the story. And you need to understand that as you dive into Genesis 22. So let's read it together, verse 1. Hopefully it'll appear on the screen. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, if you've got your Bible, you might want just to underline tested. Um, the Hebrew word here highlights that this testing isn't like a pass or fail test, like your driving license, right? This is a, a testing through which God wants to expose the character and nature of Abraham. He wants to expose to Abraham and others the faith that resides in the core of Abraham. This isn't pass or fail test. This isn't God actually wanting Abraham to sacrifice his son, right? This is a testing that exposes faith. Right, let's keep reading. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Does that sound familiar? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son. Repetition drawing us back into this story. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I'll show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, carried himself, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Awkward conversation, right? Awkward moment as they just sort of like converse ascending the mountain. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood in it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Slow down, cowboys, the message translation. But this translation says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Here's the name, by the way, looking at the names of God. This is the name, Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh will see to it. Abraham called that mountain, Yahweh will see to it. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? You would have thought 
he might have said, Yahweh saw to it. In other words, it was his testimony. Yahweh did provide. But he doesn't say that. He says, Yahweh will provide. He's not looking back as he names the mountain. He's looking forward, speaking into this understanding of the character and nature of God. Yahweh will see to it. What was he pointing towards? What was he pointing towards? We'll come to that. Number of Jewish scholars. Look at this passage, and as they examine this passage, they compare Isaac with Jesus. So how old was Isaac in this story? Now, I don't know about you, but as you read the story, you probably have in your mind like a six-year-old kid, right, being led up the mountain. Um, But scholars think that Isaac was probably in his early 30s during this story. Jesus, as he ascends Calvary towards the cross, how old was Jesus? Early 30s. Verse 6, it says that Isaac carries the wood upon which he is to be sacrificed. If you read the accounts of the crucifixion, we know that Jesus carried the wood onto which he would be nailed to be crucified. Verse 9, we see the obedience of Isaac, right? So let's just reframe at least our imaginations. This isn't a six-year-old kid. This is a 30-year-old kid almost being positioned in preparation for sacrifice. That means Isaac is completely obedient to his father, right? If it had been a wrestle, let's just imagine that because that's fun. A wrestle between a man in his prime, early 30s, and a man nearing 130. Where's your money? Where's your money? I, I know where my money is. Isaac, you got this. You got this, right? So when Isaac sort of lies down, this is like, Dad, I, I, have, I have no idea what you're doing, but I, I know you and I trust you. You know what Jesus says as he journeys towards the cross? Like, Dad, can you take this cup of suffering from me? He says it three times. Is there any other way? Can you take this cup of suffering from me? Are you sure, sure there's not another way? Can, can you take this cup of suffering from me? And then each time he says, yet, not my will be done, but yours. God, I know you. I know your nature. I trust in you. Final comparison then. They name the mountain Yahweh will provide, pointing forwards prophetically. Fun fact number one, um, the mountain upon which this took place, Moriah, um, scholars suggest that that very same mountain, or in that region of mountains at least, um, that's where Solomon built his temple, where the glory of God dwelt amongst the people. Yahweh did provide, right? Yahweh did provide. But if you look beyond Mount Moriah as the temple that Solomon established and you keep moving forwards, you realise, and again, some scholars would suggest, this is slightly debated, that either that mountain or one of those hills in the regions of that mountain was Calvary, the place where Jesus did provide himself 
as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could experience fullness of life. See, Abraham stood at that mountain celebrating that God provided a ram instead of his son and then pointed forward and said, Yahweh will see to it. Like, how is God going to fulfill this promise that my descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and through those descendants there'll be a blessing to the nations and God's going to renew and redeem the entire cosmos? Like, how is he going to do it? All I know is Yahweh will see to it. And he was pointing towards Jesus who ascended potentially that very same mountain carrying the wood on his back completely obedient to the Father so that this covenant could be fulfilled, so that we could experience the life of the age to come. Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that mind-blowing? Back to the question of Nicodemus. I want in. I want to, I want to be born again. Like, I want to be part of this new thing you're doing. I want to experience eternal life, like not just... Beyond death, like now. And the answer Jesus provides, Yahweh will see to it. Daddy will see to it. If, if you were to look at our lives, not our intellectual beliefs, if you were just to examine our lives, and maybe you can just do this you know, for your own life right now, it's probably better for you to analyze your own life than someone next to you analyze their life. That would be more fun potentially. But let's just look at our own lives. How would you fill in the blanks? Fullness of life is found in dot, dot, dot. Like, we all know the right answer. By the way, if you don't, the answer's going to be Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. Like, spoiler, yeah, it's going to be Jesus. Um, but but if, if we were to examine our own lives, what do our lives communicate? And, and honestly, for some people, if you were to examine their lives, the answer's wealth. If you look at how they actually live and the priorities they live with, and the trajectory of their hearts, the answer is wealth. They want to accumulate wealth and live a really comfortable life. If you look at some people's lives, the answer is success. They want more success, like, like dr the drug. They, just, they want another high, and then they want another high, and they want to taste more and more success. If you look at their lives... That, that's what you'd conclude, that fullness of life is found in how much success you're experiencing. For some of us in the room, it's, it's marriage. Like we believe that maybe if we could just find the right companion, at that point, oh, then we'd be living the good life. Then we would taste fullness, right? Some people live like that, missing out on this moment because they think marriage will bring about fulfillment. If you were to look at their lives, that that's what you might conclude. For others, it's fame. If I can just have my moment when everyone thinks I'm incredible, then that will satisfy something in me. Then I'll be full. I'm empty, but I would be full if I could have a moment of fame. You know, just a moment when everyone's singing my name. Something like that, right? And I'm exaggerating to make the point. But if you were to look at our addiction to social media... And how much we look about how many follows we're getting and how much, you know, traction there is. You might conclude, gosh, they're really living for recognition. They think fullness is found in that stuff, right? Now, we all proclaim with our lips 
that it's found in Jesus, but what often we proclaim with our lives is that it's really not found there. In other words, we sing the right songs on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, often, not all the time, but often, and, and I include myself fully in this, we're functional atheists. Like we rely on other stuff. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in the shadows. He doesn't want anyone to see. This is an expert in the law. Like this is an expert who knows the scriptures inside out, basically saying, I don't know the answer. This is embarrassing because I've immersed myself in the scriptures. Like I, I'm considered like an expert and I don't know how to experience this fullness of life. This is kind of embarrassing, right? Maybe some of us need that kind of humility. We've been following Jesus for so long, but maybe this is a moment to say, look, I, I, I need to discover afresh like where fullness of life is found. It's found in Jesus. So Jesus quotes John 3:16, where the language of love, your son, your only son, pulls Nicodemus back into the story of Abraham and Isaac. And in that story, Jesus is basically saying, you want to be born again? Yahweh will see to it. Yahweh will see to it through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Augustine said this, he said, God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Like, there is a restlessness present in the culture right now that's terrifying. And there's a restlessness present in the people of God that's terrifying. And could it be because we've embraced all these stories that surround us and hidden into those stories are idols and we've embraced the idols and it's broken the hearts of the worshippers. Like we've just we've gone after the wrong things, and it's led not to undivided devotion, but divided devotion, kind of worshiping Jesus and turning to fame and a bit of the you know success drug and all these things. Here's two ways to live, and this is what comes through in the story. Either we live on the foundation of faith, Yahweh will see to it, which is the journey of dependence, right? Which is um, modeled to us in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Or we live with the mindset of, I'll see to it. And we live with independence and we live in a culture that celebrates independence. Oh, you did it on your own. Well done. You didn't need anyone. You, you did it on your own. If you want a job done properly, do it. Not a trick question, yeah, do it yourself, right? We have this thing of like, if, if you want something, do it. You see to it. You see to it. We celebrate independence. And that story is the story of Abraham and, and Ishmael. And we experience this as a war, by the way. Where am I going to put my trust? Am I going to choose the pathway of faith, Abraham, or the pathway of control, taking matters into my own hand, Ishmael? Like, which way am I going to go? And honestly, a lot of the time, we don't know because it's an internal wrestle. Um, the Greek word for anxiety, merimneo, literally means to be divided. To be divided. We experience this internal division. How am I going to live? Yahweh will see to it. Am I going to see to it? Ah, internal division. The antidote to anxiety isn't just breathing exercises, right? This is the invitation into the name of God. 
Yahweh will see to it. This is the invitation to taste and see. That means taste and experience, not just intellectually understand. Taste and see the goodness of God. His track record is flawless if you put your trust in him. That's why the psalmist says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely. It's the language of dependence on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. This is what I sense the Lord saying to us as a church family. And again, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to me. It's an invitation to you. Do you want to know God more? Do you want to taste and see more of his goodness? Then this is a moment for us to lean in to these names that reveal his character. All of this stuff is fully, fully revealed in the person of Jesus. We're just joining the nation of Israel on their journey into the heart of God incrementally into the heart of God but this is a moment for us because maybe we've forgotten we've been fixated on our own journey like Moses like who am I becoming as I look into the future like am I sufficient do I have what it takes who am I and maybe this is a moment of God saying look we're going to get to the question of your identity because it's important but what's more important is for for you to understand my identity so I'm going to reveal myself to you I'm going to reveal my name And through these names, I'm going to reveal my nature. And I want these names to be almost like doorways that you walk through so that you can taste and experience who I really am. And some of you live with such heavy burdens because you've been trying to be your own provider. And you've been trying to look after your family. And you've been trying to be there for your mates. And you've been trying to be the saviour of this situation And you've been trying to remedy that situation. Your mindset has essentially been, I will see to it. And it's exhausted you and probably broken your heart. And this is the invitation of the Father to say, there's a different way to live. Yahweh will see to it. It's my name. It's my nature. And it can be your experience.